Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 36 of Unknown Orbits, The Tunnel Under the World by Frederick Pohl. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. In today's story, Guy Burkhart keeps waking up and reliving the same day over and over again, June 15th which is a Friday, I believe. Each day, he wakes up and realizes that minor details of the world around him have changed. Colors of wallpaper are different, or signs in certain businesses are different, or the employees are wearing different clothes than they normally do. These small little differences nag at him, but the thing that really he can't overlook is the fact that he's constantly being bombarded with aggressive marketing efforts. One example is he wakes up at 2 a.m. and there's a truck parked out in front of his house with a loudspeaker blaring by these freezers. They're advertising a brand of freezers and they're shouting at loud volume at 2 a.m. the slogans for why you should buy these freezers. So this goes on and on and his life sort of starts to begin unraveling a little bit because of all of this. Until one day, a work colleague named Swanson corners him and convinces him that there's nefarious forces at work, and he convinces him to go with him out to the edge of town to a giant automated chemical plant. And he works for the company in the the office for the chemical company. While he's in the middle of this Groundhog Day situation, he's questioning his own perception of it. So it's not exactly worrying him quite yet that he's reliving the same day. It's a gradual realization that there's something wrong. For instance, his wife doesn't notice the things he notices. His wife seems oblivious to all of these things that that he's noticing. So it's a very classic storytelling structure where the main character is the only one that sees the the strange things around him and uh, all the people around him are skeptical and are scoffing at his ideas. So it's a very standard sort of a story plot. So he and Swanson head out to this automated chemical plant. There's no people out there. It's all run by robots and machines. And while they are wandering through this giant plant and suddenly some 
police officers show up and start chasing them or private detectives or something like that. And so they're trying to hide from these people and their boss is with the uh, police. One thing leads to another and they come to find out that, surprise, surprise, they're not really human beings. They're actually robots who the minds of dead people have been transferred into, which is a pretty creepy idea. And the whole thing is being run by an advertising firm. The entire town is part of some simulation using robots and the brains of dead people to test out different marketing techniques and different advertising campaigns. The perfect focus group, because you can reproduce everything every day and make small changes. And make small changes and and so forth. And that's what he's been experiencing is these small changes every day that are made to these advertising campaigns. And then the big shocker is it turns out not only are their brains inside of robots, but they're tiny little robots living in a tiny little pretend town. And the people are giants and the end. Yes, Yes. It's a very Twilight Zone sort of a story. Which, as I'm reading it, and I get to the end, and I I could see the end coming, like you can with your average Twilight Zone episode, the big shocking twist ending, you can usually kind of see it coming. Well, the main ending, and then there's the secondary ending of, oh, we're tiny, so we can't go get help. So we talked in a previous episode about Ray Bradbury's allegations that Rod Serling stole certain ideas from science fiction writers and turn them into Twilight Zone episodes. And I would say if you were going to make that argument, this would be one of your prime exhibits. Because I don't know if you remember the very familiar Twilight Zone episode where a ballerina and a general and a clown and two other characters I don't remember, they're trapped inside of some room There's an open ceiling, but it's very high and they can't climb out of it. It's like a cylindrical white room and they keep hearing this bell or this, you know, this noise. And they're like, we can't remember how we got here. Why are we here? And then, oh, they're actually toys in a little boy's toy bin. See, now I completely disagree that Rod Serling stole this story for that episode. I think he stole six characters in search of an author for that story. Tell us about that one. I hated it. Who's the author? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. It was like a very conceptual 1930s play. I was on a date. I had no... this wasn't science fiction? Oh, no, no. Well, uh, for its day, it could almost have been. And I think it was like the first major work that broke the fourth wall. And you can imagine how uh, in the 1990s, how having a character actually sitting in the audience was not really groundbreaking anymore. Oh, yeah. There was certain experimental theater groups that that was one of their main things that they did was directly interacting with the audience. So what was the name of that play again? Six Characters in Search of an Author. And uh, if you work out the inflation, I paid like 80 bucks a ticket to see the thing. So the name of the Twilight Zone episode in question is Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Well, see, it's different because one's six and the other's five. Yeah. So maybe he he stole from both of them, perhaps. But anyway, that's a bit of a diversion. But I did feel it was very much a Twilight Zone style story, which Rod Serling did base the tone and the structure of a lot of his, his stories on the type of story that was being published in Galaxy and Fantasy and Science Fiction in the 1950s. So this predates Twilight Zone, but it's an example of a type of story that I, I'm sure 
was very common at the time. Yeah, kind of a punchline story, as as I refer to yeah, this. Yeah, and this one, I, I didn't think it was bad. I liked the story. It was okay, even though I saw the end coming. But the thing that made it a little better than average for me was the idea of taking dead people and putting their brains into these robots and then tormenting them. That was really pure evil. And I like that. I like the fact that these advertising people were so evil that they would do that. That was the twist part of it that made the story better than average. I always liked the idea that they were small because I pictured some accountant saying, oh my God, we, that costs way too much. You're going to have to reduce that. Exactly. So again, and this is a theme that we keep running into here in the stories we're doing, is what's the deal with stories about advertising? Speaking of the Twilight Zone, we just did a recent episode where we talked about a couple of episodes of the Twilight Zone where burned out advertising executives have these little adventures. We just did a, a very popular episode, Beetlejuice Bridge, where it was all about how aliens come to Earth and the government turns to advertising and marketing people to market them to the American people. And there's another one. I don't know if we've put it on the list or not, but Silly Season, which might have been by Kornbluth, is about a newspaper reporter reporting on advertising. I'm glad you mentioned Kornbluth because Frederick Pohl and Kornbluth, uh, they were frequent collaborators, did a very well-received novel called The Space Merchants, where the United States is run by advertising executives. So the whole society is just completely under the thumb of advertising executives. If you go and read that book today, you may not realize its impact at the time, since so much of it has come true. That's why I'm putting it on my personal reading list, and I think we may wind up doing an episode on it at some point in the future. Because yes, reading the description, I'm like, boy, this sounds really familiar <laughs> to me. And I, I would love to see how they viewed it playing out versus how it actually did or is playing out as we speak. It's not a coincidence that Frederick Pohl, in particular, was a person that talked about advertising a lot because he worked in advertising. So let's give you a little background in him. Before we go on, can I give my theoretical answer to your question? Sure. I just thought that after the war, sorry, I grew up with older parents, after World War II. After the war. Yes. You know, for baby boomers, it's like there was the war, and that was World War II, and that was the war. Yes. You ever wonder if there were people in the 1920s who'd said the war, and they said, no, 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 the Civil War, damn it. <laughs> At any rate, after World War II, colleges changed because of the GI Bill. They were letting a lot more people in. And my, my little theory is that if you went to these colleges and you were any kind of creative writer, they would tell you, well, okay, obviously you're advertising or newspaper. There's nothing else for you. Well, that was very similar to my personal experience when I was in my senior year of high school. And of course, in your senior year of high school, at least back in the my day was like, okay, well, you're 17 years old. It's time for you to pick a career for the rest of your life. Time to choose your destiny. And all I knew is I wanted to be a writer. And all my guidance counselors and my parents were all saying the same thing. Well, you can't just be a writer. You know, you can't make a living off of that. You have to be a teacher or a newspaper reporter. Uh -huh. And I'm 17 years old and I'm a, you know, a metal head. And I'm, I'm like, teacher? Ugh, I didn't want to be a teacher. That sounds really boring. And write for a newspaper? Oh, that's boring. You know, so I didn't know what to do. I wound up joining the Navy and getting the GI Bill. 
and then becoming a newspaper reporter at one point. So yeah, I think you're right. If you're a writer, nobody back then or when I was coming up would tell you, well, if you want to be a writer, you should just be a writer. And there were people that we've talked about that were very prolific and made a living by being a writer in those days. But apparently, Paul was not one of them. He initially, let's go back to his biography, dropped out of high school and was a member of the Futurians, the famous science fiction fan group in the late 30s that included Isaac Asimov, James Blish. Who else am I forgetting? Damon Knight. Damon Knight. Oh, Wolheim. Donald Wolheim. A lot of important figures and writers in science fiction came out of the Futurians uh, in New York. So he was a member of that. He, as a teenager who dropped out of high school, wound up editing astonishing stories and super science stories, two science fiction magazines of the day. He was the one who bought a number of Isaac Asimov's very earliest stories. Very early in his career, Asimov was desperately trying to get published in Astounding Magazine, and Campbell was being his mentor, and he rejected a lot of his stories. And some of those stories that Campbell rejected wound up being published by Paul. So he had a a very close relationship with Asimov. He wound up becoming his agent, uh, I believe, shortly after. And then after service in the war, the war, he got a job as a copywriter on Madison Avenue. So he had that marketing advertising background that he numerous times put to use in his stories later. Frederick Pohl was one of the great Renaissance men of science fiction, of golden age of science fiction, because he was a pretty good writer. He had a very wide variety of writing. He did write quite a few humorous stories. He collaborated with other writers like Cyril Kornbluth. He was an anthologist. He was a fairly important anthologist. Cordwainer Smith's famous stories, Scanners Live in Vain, was published in a very obscure magazine that only published a few issues. It was Frederick Pohl that took that story and anthologized it in the early 1950s and helped to make it famous and eventually become considered one of the great stories in science fiction history. So he was the one that had the foresight to see the quality that Cordwainer Smith had as a writer and that story in particular. So he was a very important anthologist as well. He also did an experiment as an agent that I always thought was interesting. He describes it in his book, The Way the Future Was, wherein he told his clients that he personally would pay them a per word rate for everything they wrote, anything they wrote. The idea was that this would free up his writers to write whatever they wanted, and therefore it would be better, and he felt he could sell it. He said he did break even on it, but it wasn't a great success. Right. Like I said, one of his clients was Isaac Asimov, and I think he was his agent for quite a while. Throughout the 1940s and into the 1950s, Asimov stopped writing fiction for a while in the late 50s. So I don't know if that was the point where they parted ways, but he was his agent for quite a while. In a period of time when Asimov was one of the acknowledged leaders in the field of science fiction. And I, th- I think it was Cornbluth's agent as well. And there were a couple other notable science fiction writers who used him as an agent. Now, this was in a period of time when the science fiction magazine market was only paying 
one cent or two cent or at very best three cents a word. There was only one really quality magazine, astounding magazine. And even that magazine during the war, the war, was in danger of going out of business a couple times due to the increase of cost of, uh, of paper. So he was an agent, but he was an agent at a time when there probably weren't a lot of agents, real agents, lining up to sign up science fiction writers as their clients. Yeah. The other thing that Frederick Pohl is very well known for is that when H.L. Gold, due to health issues, was no longer able to edit Galaxy Magazine, Frederick Pohl was the, the one who stepped in to take his place. The health issue being, I think, is a problem with his agoraphobia. Famously, he stayed in his apartment throughout most of the 50s. He slowly got better, and the one time or the first time he left his apartment in New York, he got into a car accident, and oh, that made yes. it worse. That's what it was. Now that you, you've mentioned it, I do remember reading about that. It was the combination of the injuries that he received in the car accident and how it accelerated his agoraphobia that it made it impossible for him to continue as the editor of Galaxy. So Paul stepped in. He was a very successful editor of that magazine. So what happened with Paul and a Galaxy was in 1959, the owners of the magazine acquired another science fiction magazine, If, and they put Gold in charge of that magazine as well, which turned out to be, given his health issues, uh, not manageable. So Galaxy wound up shifting to a bi-monthly schedule. And that was the point where Frederick Pohl stepped in to help him out because he had this heavy workload of these two magazines to edit. And of course, as we said, he had a car accident, which kind of accelerated the whole issue and turned the magazines over to Pohl at that point. And he was the editor throughout most of the 1960s until there was another change in ownership. So while he was editing Galaxy in the 1960s, it won the Hugo for Best Magazine in 1966, 1967, and 1968. I used to be really into Galaxy, and my recollection is that the editorial style of the magazine did not change very much, but I think Paul was a better marketer. Under Gold, they had two anthologies, the Galaxy Reader and the second Galaxy Reader. Those were edited by Gold himself, correct? Yeah. They were in the mold of the Treasury of Science Fiction where they had like 60 stories and they were like two inches thick. Mm -hmm. Pohl turned them into a series of maybe a dozen stories each and he came out with them much more often, which you can imagine would have much better sales. Were the, uh, the first two volumes, those were hardcover? Yeah. And then he came up with paperback versions? The original publication of them were still hardcover. They were about a third of the size of the previous anthologies, but he also made deals to have paperback versions. And I was so into it, I had everything. I had all the paperback versions. I had all the hardcover versions. And I would imagine those are pretty damn good collections of stories. Oh, they are. They are. If I were to show you the table of contents, you would recognize a lot of stories just from our discussions. I even had H.L. Gold wrote a semi-autobiographical book, to be honest, not very good, called Gold on Science Fiction. And I had a copy of the original publication. I had, now, if you purchased one from eBay and it's number 13 and it's signed by H.L. Gold, 
You bought it from me. Did you sell it or did you give it away or what did you do with it? I sold it. I hope you got a pretty penny for it. I think I broke even, sadly. Oh, man. That sounds amazing. But the point of my obsession with Galaxy Magazine is that I ended up with a list of questions, things I couldn't answer in the 1990s. Now, of course, you can Google them easily. And I wrote to Frederick Pohl, and he answered. And he was cool about answering to begin with, because I think he was in retirement by that point. And he listed all my questions and answered them all. He was very nice about it. That's very cool. He Frederick Pohl was, obviously, since he, he was so deeply connected as a agent, as an anthologist, as an editor, he was widely admired and loved by the science fiction community. And it sounds like he had the personal qualities that merited that based on your story. If you're interested in this era or Frederick Pohl, I would strongly suggest Pohl's autobiography, The Way the Future Was. It's a very good read, very easy to find. Any final thoughts? Yes. In reading up on the story, I found that it, like many other really good stories from this era, was made into a radio adaptation. In this case, for the show X-1, which I... I think was the one that had a direct connection to Galaxy. There was another radio show, Dimension X, which had a connection to Astounding. I mean, it's kind of funny how that happened. They were competitors Mm -hmm. in print, and now they're competitors in radio. And for a while, Campbell used to record a frankly terrible introduction to the stories for Dimension X. These are all available on the internet. You could either go through the Internet Archive, or just search OTR, that's for Old Time Radio, and you will find an unbelievable number of episodes of old radio shows. Everything from, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Jack Benny in 1924 to the late 50s is available. It's out there. It's fun to explore these things if you're a podcast listener throw in an episode of Dimension X every once in a while. Didn't uh, Galaxy Magazine have a relationship with the early TV show? Was it Tales of Tomorrow? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, though. Tales of Tomorrow, which, have you seen? Yeah, I've seen a few episodes of Tales okay. of Tomorrow. And, and, and yet you make fun of it. Well, it was, you know, it, it was live TV from New York in the very early days of television. It had recognizable stars, people who went on to big careers in TV and movies. But I wouldn't say that the acting was first rate necessarily, and certainly the production values were not. Well, it was a challenge to put science fiction on television in those days with special effects. sets and... Yeah, special effects, which are basically just double exposures. Yeah. I was going to mention my favorite episode, the episode featuring Rod Steiger... You've seen that one, haven't you? I think after we talked about it recently, I think I did go back and check it out. He's acting twice as hard as everyone else. (laughs) That's what I mean. It was the acting was very uneven and the few that I've seen. But, you know, it was the mid 50s, early days of television. I just for the hell of it recently watched the pilot episode of the old Perry Mason show. And I didn't realize when I when I read about that afterwards that Perry Mason was the first hour-long drama 
in television history. One of the very first hour-long dramas, most of the dramas were half-hour and live. I think Tales of Tomorrow was only a half-hour-long show. The infamous Tales of Tomorrow that I remember is the Lon Chaney Jr. Frankenstein episode. Oh, that's sad and hilarious. Which, at one point, he goes wild as the Frankenstein monster and accidentally knocks over the set. They probably filmed it too late in the day because he'd already hit the bottle. (laughs) Yeah, those were the earliest days of television, so you can't really fault them too much for low production values and acting that was fairly uneven. But it is a fun view, and I will try to remember to link to the full series, because yeah, it is if, available. If you do that, I might, I might actually check those out. Maybe someday we will do an episode strictly on radio and early television. We should. That, we're, that's within our purview, radio and TV. Um, you're the radio expert, so I'm going to leave that to you to come up with um, some materials that we can do, talk about radio and science fiction. You know, I'd be happy to do a Tales of Tomorrow, you know? Yeah, I have some extra information on it. It was a little hard to get. Okay, let's, let's make sure it's on the list. All right, that's it for episode 36. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. Now stay tuned for X-1 on NBC. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.